Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Thank you so much for joining us today for a conversation about an event that's going to be taking place later this week, and that is the unveiling of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Memorial in New York City. I am honored to welcome as our guest today the woman who led the effort for this memorial as president of the Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition Board of Directors, Marianne Trishati. Marianne, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, Scott, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to talk with you today. Really looking forward to the conversation. And I, I thought we could start for, for listeners who may not be familiar with the story, just kind of giving an overview of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, you know, and, and the events that took place that day. Yeah, sure. Well, it happened over a hundred years ago, 1911. New York was a center of garment manufacturing, particularly for women's clothes. And the, the interesting thing about garment factories and all factories in New York is they didn't look like factories. So the Triangle Waste Company, and I should explain if, if uh, listeners uh, may, don't know, a waste is, um, it's a woman's blouse. It's like a crisp cotton uh, shirt, a tailored shirt, but for women. So the Triangle Waste Company uh, was owned by two immigrants, Max Blank and Isaac Harris. They were known as the Shirtwaist Kings because they were incredibly successful manufacturers. And the factory itself was located on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of a 10-story building in New York City called, at the time, the Ash Building. It was a state-of-the-art building, had been built at the turn of the previous century, right? So the early 1900s, it was fireproof. Uh, but of course, the, the people working within it and any you know, wooden structures or fabric um, within that, that structure would not have been fireproof. But the building was state-of-the-art. Uh, this was not a sweatshop. It was a modern factory, and it would have been considered a good job by the workers uh, who were employed there. Uh, most of the workers at Triangle were women. We, we estimate about 500 workers. Many of, you know, women were hired in the garment industry, one, because the work was considered work that they could do, and it was familiar work. So the workers at Triangle were largely Italian and Jewish immigrants, and these were skills, the ability to sew um, was something that, you know, was transmitted I'll speak about Italians, for example. This was something that women would have been taught at home. It was a skill that they would have recognized um, and had in their family backgrounds, many of them, and it was a job that was considered acceptable for women. Um, a lot of families worked there, and you had a packed factory uh, on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors, and it was packed with machines, and it was packed with workers, and it was packed with scraps of cloth. There were no mandated safety measures at the time. There weren't mandatory fire drills. There was a fire escape, but it went into a courtyard in the center of the building. It was not tested regularly, and the fire escape was allowed to count as one of the exits to the building. And um, when they were measuring the square footage of the building, they used height instead of you know, floor space. So it seemed like it was bigger than it was on paper, but it actually was not as expansive as it seemed. There were no fire extinguishers, and the doors opened inward. One of those sets of doors was locked regularly to prevent workers from taking breaks, unauthorized breaks, and to keep union organizers out and also supposedly to prevent theft. But we know that theft was minimal to non-existent in these uh, factories. So what happened was at about quarter of five on a Saturday, March 25th, 1911, on the eighth floor, a cigarette ash, probably from a cutter that was a very skilled profession, and the cutter uh, was probably taking a much-needed break to smoke a cigarette. The ash fell into a bin of fabric scraps, and there were so many 
um, and the, the floor hadn't been swept and the air was literally filled with scraps of, you know, pieces of fiber so that the bin went on fire that spread and the floor had scraps all over it. There was oil from the machines and the air itself, as I said, was filled with fibers. And so the fire just started blazing. The switchboard operator on the eighth floor called up to the 10th floor where the owners and their family members and some other workers were. Those workers went to safety across the roof. They were ferried to an NYU law building uh, that was next to the Ash building. And the workers on the eighth floor who found out first, obviously they escaped down in the elevator and through the one door that was open. But remember it opened inwards. So a struggle to get out because the girls panicked and, and all the workers panicked because they didn't have fire drills. So they didn't know what to do. Unfortunately, the 10th floor switchboard operator never called down to the ninth floor in the panic. And I really don't think we can blame that person. They rushed to get out to help others get out. And so workers on the ninth floor found out a few minutes later than those on the eighth and 10th floors. And those few minutes uh, were deadly. Uh, none of the workers were found at their machines. They all tried to get out. In the end, 146 of them would not make it. Well, actually 60 at least 60 workers tried to get out through the windows on the ninth floor. Uh, they did not survive. They either crashed, uh, many of them crashed through the nets that the fire department had held out to try to catch them because the fire department did come right away, but their ladders only reached up to the sixth floor. And so when the girls looked down and saw that, they jumped. And even though they saw others crash through the nets, you know, the fear of dying in a fire is intense. It's incredible. And the workers just thought, I'm sure, I mean, I can only imagine it, this was their only chance. A few of them did survive very briefly afterwards, but no one ultimately survived the jump. And at the end of the day, the fire lasted about 15 minutes. 146 workers were killed in front of fellow workers and onlookers who watched in horror as these women either burned inside the building or died uh, jumping to try to escape the flames. I should add that uh, the oldest was in her early 40s and the youngest was 14, and there were seven pairs of sisters. So this was a, a really devastating event for those who saw it. It changed their lives forever. And it changed New York City. And I don't think it's a stretch to say the U.S. and in some ways the world. Absolutely, in ways that we're continuing to, to see today. Switching gears a little bit. I'm curious if we could talk a little bit about your background, you know, how it was that you first became interested in the, in the Triangle Fire and the American labor movement, you know, leading to your work as the president of, of the board for the Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition. Well, I come from a union family. So my ethnic background is Irish and Italian. And so I come from a family of immigrant coal miners and garment workers. So workplace safety when you're related to coal miners is a really big deal. And the Triangle Fire is important when you're related to garment workers. My mom and my grandma were garment workers. And I learned about the Triangle Fire in middle school um, a lot. If you learn about anything in U.S. labor history, uh, you learn about Triangle. And I think because it's such a compelling story and kids can relate to it because these workers were young. So I was probably 14 when I learned about the fire, learning about 14-year-olds who instead of being in school were in a factory. And when I came home to talk to my mom about it, she said to me, we knew we were safe in our factory because of what had happened to those poor girls at Triangle. So my mom was not even born until 1933, but Triangle was part of her work history and her life history. And so it was important to me. 
And then when I was a graduate student, I had an internship at the AFL-CIO archives, and there was an exhibit on the Triangle Fire. And I would go walk to see both the photos of the fire, but also the reproductions of newspaper coverage and cartoons, you know, the illustrations, cartoons. And I was so moved and so angry, but yet so touched and so sad at the same time uh, that I never forgot it. And when I moved to New York, when I got a job at Hofstra University, I became involved in commemorating the fire with other Italian-American women, and then ultimately was invited to join the Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition. And when this memorial project was started, I was asked if I would like to lead the project. And I said, well, I don't know anything about public art, and I live on Long Island. I don't even live in New York City, though I do have roots in the city. And I was, uh, it was suggested to me, well, you could take the train and you can learn. And I was so, um, I think, connected to this story and committed to this memory. And, and I'm living proof of how important it was to other workers um, who came after the Triangle workers that this had happened and, and that it had ensured their safety, that I said yes. Perfect transition into my next question. Uh, talking about, you know, the, the coalition itself, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about, you know, the, the history of the coalition, how it came together, you know, leading up to the, the unveiling of, of the memorial later this week. So the coalition was begun by a bunch of people who, I mean, I, I was not at the very first meeting, but these were people like me who thought that this was a really important story, a, an important New York story, but also a story with much wider resonance. And the 100th anniversary of the fire was coming up. So this was in 2008 and a bunch of activists got together. They had met through the Chalk Project. Um, an artist, Ruth Sergal, launched what, what's a really interesting and, and I think really engaging project, which is um, to have people come into New York City on the anniversary of the fire and chalk the names and ages of the workers who died in the fire in front of the places where they lived. And so, yeah. And so, you know, I, I had done uh, some chalking. And it is a really moving experience. People talk to you about the fire, and but it's very ephemeral, right? So once the, the first rainstorm comes or the first building owner comes with a bucket of water, it, it's gone. Um, but the people who are involved in this project and others who, who are really interested in, in the story of Triangle and in labor history in general, women's history, immigration history, the garment industry, they, they thought, well, you know, we've really got to, we've really got to do something special for the 100th anniversary of the fire in 2011. And then what we'd like to do is something that lasts longer than chalk, longer than, you know, an annual commemoration, even a big one, like the 100th anniversary, we should build a permanent memorial. And I had joined at that time. And what we quickly learned was you can't do those two things at once, particularly when you're a small but mighty all-volunteer group. It's hard to organize a centennial commemoration even, you know, in partnership with the labor unions and community groups and organizations like ASSP and to build a memorial. So we, we decided to focus on the centennial and then right afterwards to move towards this project. Um, because the building is owned by NYU, it's now called the Brown Building. And as I mentioned, it, it was fireproof. So it still stands. And because it was landmarked, uh, it's New York City's second cultural landmark. The first is Stonewall. We had to really work with um, the university, with the Landmarks Preservation Commission to get their approval to do this. And we also, because this story is so important to so many different people, we, we had to build trust and partnerships with organizations, with labor unions, community organizations, faith organizations, ethnic organizations, historic preservation organizations. And that took some time, but we had built, I think, a good reputation with the Centennial and so we signed an historic agreement with NYU in 2012 that allows us to install a memorial on their building. And then we ran an international design competition 
we had over 30 countries uh, represented with uh, almost 180 entries. And we chose uh, through a, an anonymous uh, juried selection process uh, with experts in architecture, design, fashion, and labor history. We selected Reframing the Sky, a design from two artists who were at the time living in Queens. So go figure, right? We had people all over the world. And then the winners are from one of the boroughs of New York City. And then Landmarks approved it. And NYU has been a stalwart partner throughout this process. And that's how it all came together. And in 2015, then Governor Andrew Cuomo found out about the project and said, give me your capital budget and I will, I will fund this. And so we did. I'm not often speechless, but getting the call from Governor Cuomo's office um, was one of those rare moments where I was speechless for a while. And then we found out that there were some difficulties with the building because it is an older building. And then COVID hit, we had a few delays. And, and as with many projects, we had some additional expenses. So we, we turned back to fundraising among unions and organizations like ASSP and big-hearted individuals who really care about this story. And we, uh, yeah, we, we are making this happen. It's New York's first labor memorial. And it will be um, the first trilingual memorial. We will have this story of the fire in English, Italian, and Yiddish. And we're really proud of this accomplishment. As you should be. Uh, and talking about more about the design itself, you mentioned kind of telling the story of the fire. I wonder if we could talk a little more about, you know, the the memorial itself, you know, what 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 people can expect, you know, what what uh, what all it includes. Yeah, it's a beautiful design. And it's so the building is a neo Renaissance building. It's a neo-Renaissance building, and it was, again, it was a cultural landmark, right? So neo-Renaissance buildings are cool, but they're not rare in New York. And so it is not the architecture that makes this building important. It's the story. And the design of the memorial stands out on this building because it is not a neo-Renaissance design, nothing that will blend in. There, are, I should add, there are three plaques on the building already. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a New York City cultural landmark. And the union, the ILGWU, International Ladies Garment Workers Union, put a plaque on there for the 50th anniversary of the fire. But people walk right by those. I have been there with my husband, and this is literally true, standing in front of the building. And people have come up to us and said, can you tell us where the Triangle Building is? So we wanted a design that is not, you know, not garish, not, and it had to work with NYU, you know, with the, U, the building is a science building now. It has science classrooms and labs. So it had to allow access it to be tasteful. It had to, you know, but it had to stand out. And this does. So it is a stainless steel ribbon that cascades down from the ninth floor of the building. And it is engraved with the pattern of an actual cloth ribbon that we invited people from all over the world to contribute pieces to and to come and sew at the Fashion Institute of Technology. We have scanned that ribbon. So it's a, you know, it's a ribbon that is 10 stories high and that was sewed by hand by a number of volunteers, kind of homage to the sewing that happened in that factory in 1911. So it, it begins at the ninth floor because that's where the workers were who died in, in the fire. And it cascades down to about 12 feet above the ground. And, and it's at the corner of the building. And I, if your listeners have ever seen historic buildings, you know that the signs always kind of came off the corner of the building to tell people what was in there, right? And that was the only way people knew there were factories in that building because they didn't look like factories, right? So it cascades down, it splits on the corner at 12 feet at the corner of Washington and Green. And it has the names of the workers who died in the fire stenciled in it. So not engraved, but stenciled because it is a horizontal now element. And the light 
from the sun or in the evening, the light from very modest but very effective LED lights on the building will shine through and the names will then be reflected on a parallel structure, right? Horizontal structure that is not stainless steel. It's a material called stone glass. It's black stone with the reflective quality of glass because glass is added to it. And the names then reflect, they almost look like they're floating, the names and the ages. And so it's a ribbon that comes down that splits. What I should add also is that the panels on the side of the ribbon, right, tell the story of the fire in English, Italian, and Yiddish. And then it comes back like this, and it reflects the names and the ages of the 146. And it also, that stone glass panel that has the names and the ages from the stencil above also includes engraved on it testimony from eyewitnesses like Francis Perkins, the first female secretary of labor, and Josephine Pano, who was looking for her daughter in all the melee and other workers who worked at Triangle. So it's very moving because it has scale. You say, holy cannoli, what's that? But then you come closer and you realize that people are looking at this thing and you look and you see these names and these ages, and then you start reading. And then when you get one side, you see the story and you think, what's on the other side? And you might walk back and see the other panel that tells the story in another language. And so we think it's a very engaging piece of art. And I should add that we included family members roughly in alphabetical order. We included the birth names of the women who married so that people could see the sisters and the mothers and daughters who worked there because this was devastating to families to lose, you know, one family, the Maltese family lost a mom and two daughters, all the women in the family that day. So we really wanted that to come alive as part of the story. And we want the ages so that people see these were teenagers. These were, you know, young women. These are women who were planning their weddings. These were women who were going to parties and dances. And they went to work one day. And because of a lack of safety precautions and a disregard for human life, they never came home. When you think about the memorial for those who come visit, what is it you want them to take away? from the experience? Well, you know, I think we're living in a, a really interesting moment. There's so much potential, but there are a lot of people who I think have lost heart. You know, people are struggling economically, climate change. I mean, there's a lot of things that can feel overwhelming. And one of the things we want people to take away from the Triangle Fire Memorial is that it, it makes a difference. If we, if the things that, that trouble us, if we, if we fight back, if we see the world the way it is, and, and sometimes that's, that's not a pretty sight, it's sometimes a horrific sight, we can fight back, however, and make the world that we want. So one of the takeaways for us is that people learn about the fire, they learn about this terrible tragedy that happened, but then they, they also learn that people banded together afterwards and they did something to change circumstances for working people, and not just working people, but people in general, right? that people stood up and said, look, the few should not have so much control over the lives of the many. So we want people to feel inspired. Of course, we want them to understand the terrible tragedy, but we want them to feel inspired by what people did after this tragedy. People like Frances Perkins, who heard what was happening, rushed over, was horrified by what she saw, and then dedicated her life to working for the betterment of working people. Francis Perkins said on the 50th anniversary of the fire, the New Deal began on March 25th, 1911. So, you know, to see that we have things like Social Security and unemployment insurance in part because of Triangle. We want people to look around their workplaces and to see that there are maximum occupancy limits and fire extinguishers and fire drills and safety inspections because of Triangle. We want women to recognize that 
the right to vote is in part indebted to the workers at Triangle because that inspired suffragists. And they said, when we don't have a say over the laws that govern us and the people who make those laws are not responsive to us, women die. And so, you know, it's stepped up organizing for suffrage and for women's rights generally. Um, and the union movement was, Triangle really gave the union movement a shot in the arm. Uh, Italian immigrant women who had kind of shied away from unions, they didn't feel welcome after Triangle said, we got to join. We got to we got to strike. We got to be militant because if we don't fight for ourselves, no one is going to fight for us. So I think in an age where people think, you know, it doesn't do any good or, you know, government only looks out for the powerful or you can't fight City Hall. The lesson of Triangle is you certainly can that you can, you know, government works for us when we push it to do so, that when working people join together, there's almost nothing we can't do for ourselves and for one another. And I think that's the big takeaway. I guess the other big takeaway is immigrants matter. They work hard and we need to respect their contributions to building the city of New York, the state of New York, the country of the U.S. And we need never to forget uh, the work that they do and that women matter, that women work hard and their contributions deserve to be recognized. And so we think the memorial does all of that. It's one of a very few number of memorials to immigrant working class women in New York, in the U.S. And as I said, it's New York's first labor memorial. Very, very well said. And that's that's how I, I always try to think about it. As you said, you know, it was a horrific event, but it was a catalyst for change. People like Francis Perkins saying, we can do better. We must do better. What do we need to do to make workplaces safer to make life better for for everyone. And any anything else you'd like to add? Any final thoughts? No, just that I'm really I, I'm again, I'm so grateful to be here. I think Triangle is a story that needs to be told again and again and again. We need to take seriously the needs of working people to be safe. And I'm so glad that you invited me to come and talk about it. And I really hope that people who listen are moved to come and see the memorial when you're in New York, because um I think if you're moved to come and see it, you will be moved by it. Certainly, we expect that, you know, it, it will be there for a long time to come and um, inspire lots of people of all ages and all ethnicities from everywhere around the world to do their part to keep fighting for a better world because it is possible. And I think Triangle shows that. Yes, it is. Thank you so much again for coming on, Mary, and for all your work in making this memorial happen and, and helping to ensure that, you know, the, the Triangle Fire and those who were lost that day will never be forgotten. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org. We'll see you next time.